Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 284 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking about steps you need to take when you're branching out to own a solo or small law firm. Today's podcast is brought to you by Case Text, Text Expander, and Back Office Betty's. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Stephanie, one of the things we're always telling our community members and our labsters is about the importance of having values for your firm and not just having them, but living them. And so we want to talk a little bit about how we've stayed true to one of the values that we set as a company. Yeah. I mean, we talk about values and some people are always like, why do I really need these? And I'm like, no, they become your guardrails. They become the things you use to make decisions. Someone once told me it's easy to find the shore when it's in sight, but it's, you know, this is what gives you that navigation point when you're out in the middle of the ocean and you don't know which way to go, which if that metaphor works for you, <laughs> go with it. Yeah. And so we have a policy not to work with people who are jerks is I guess the best way to, to kind of put it. And it's a policy that across the board, we kind of think about in a lot of different ways. Like, are we a good fit with the people that we're working with? Are people that we're onboarding to the lawyer's team, are they a good cultural fit? And do they believe in these values as well? Is there someone who's crossed the line in one of our Facebook communities and is violating our community standards? And so that's one of the things that we talk about a lot. And we don't just mention it, you know, when you come on board the team and you're just adapting to lawyerist and like, okay, by the way, this is one of the company values. It's really a living, breathing thing that we had to take a look at this last week based on a difficult situation. Yeah. To be fair, because Aaron and Sam have taught me it's okay to curse and I don't very (laughs) often, but it's, it's really simple. We call it the no asshole rule because yeah, (laughs) it's a thing, by the way, this is a thing you can have in your firm there's this idea that we can say no to people and we don't have to work with everyone. And recently we had a vendor that we work with show up and honestly, they were an asshole in dealing with you, Laura. And Mm -hmm. it was not fun. And you reached out to us, honestly, not to come. I mean, you were just so taken back by the behavior. I think you reached out like, oh my gosh, I just need to tell someone about this experience, right? Like, cause it, it impacted you. It impacted your day and it was difficult. And our Mm -hmm. reaction immediately was like, that's not cool. That's not okay to treat our people poorly. And we don't have to work with everyone and we're not going to work with this person going forward. Right. And so that's part of the reason you're actually not hearing a sponsored interview for this particular podcast episode, because we made the decision that it was more important to air this episode without one, because we did not want to just have the sponsor on and and air this interview when there was clearly not a fit 
with where our values are at. And so this is something that you can be asking yourself and your firm across the board. How do we respond to these situations? What does it mean for someone to violate our community standards or clash against our values that we're telling all of our people and our clients are really important to us? And unfortunately, this is just one of the hard things. And it points back to why it's so valuable to have these in the first place. It gives you that framework to work from where when there's a question of like, well, did this violate the standards? Could this have been misinterpreted in any other way? You kind of have that sounding board of all of the other team members as far as how they interpret the different values. And I think that's really what happened here is it was just such an unexpected situation. We work really hard to have advertisers and vendors and partner relationships with companies and people that we believe in. And because of that commitment, it's such a stark contrast when you have something that isn't aligned with that as well. Yeah. So simple. Don't be an asshole if you want to work with us (laughs) and do the same for your firm. Figure out if you don't have written values, write them down and live by them and enforce them. You'll be better for it. Your team will. And ultimately all the clients that you work with. Now we have our conversation about starting your own law firm. So today, Stephanie and I want to talk about starting a law firm, what to really know about it, some of the key things that are important from day one, and then some of the pitfalls that you can potentially avoid when you are starting off as a solo or a small firm lawyer. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Awesome. So what do you think? Do you think there's common reasons why people want to start their own law firm? Do you see trends around that? Like they're coming from big law or are they graduating from law school and diving right into being a solo? I'm just sort of curious if you have seen any patterns around that? It's really both, right? I get a lot of folks who tell me I'm just coming out of law school and I want to start my own practice or somewhere along the way they've been practicing and now they want to jump and do their own thing. So it's hard to pinpoint. Both are possible. Obviously, if you're coming right out of school, my only other advice I give in addition to all the business pieces is you really need to find some great mentors to go to for substantive legal questions because they will absolutely come up and law school doesn't really prepare you for all the things you need to do for a day-to-day practice. So if that's your plan, you know, if you've clerked in an office during law school, that helps, but try to get a good group of people that you know you can call to for those silly questions. Like I always say, who to mail, what to win is really the hardest thing of the first year of practice. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but it's probably not something that's covered but comes up on a day-to-day basis as a solo lawyer. So we've previously talked about some of the things that you need to consider and questions you need to ask. If you want to refer back to that, it's episode 208, and it's hard questions for small firm lawyers. So that's more of what happens before this stage where you're asking those questions to determine if this is the right move for you to make. Once you've come to the decision decision of, all right, I'm ready to start my own firm. What are the next couple of things that you do after you've become firm in that decision? Yeah. I mean, I think you really need to take a minute to think about what it is you're going to offer, like who you're going to help and how you're going to help them. And it may seem really obvious to you. It may be that you're going to just do the type of law that you've did at a different firm at the big firm or whatever. And I would just caution you to challenge yourself to really look at from a market perspective. So most people, when they go into business, stop and look at the marketplace and say, is this something that the market needs? 
and how am I going to be different and what am I going to do to kind of make my own space? And I think as lawyers, one mistake sometimes we make is we just jump into an already really crowded market space and say, we're going to just offer the same thing everybody else is. We think we're going to be different, but we're really not. And then it makes it really hard to stand out and market yourself and drive new clients to your firm if you're sort of just doing what everybody else is doing. Right. If you can't even answer the question of what it is that you do differently from all of the other personal injury lawyers, your clients aren't going to be able to tell that difference either. So you start by making sure that there's a space in the market and a need for what you're going to do. We tend to work with a lot of forward-thinking attorneys who want to deviate from the path of the way that things have always been done. So can you talk a little bit about some of those things that you can question when you're setting up your own firm that maybe you don't need to do the way every other firm has done? Is it pricing? Is it the way that you market? Are there things that you can be more creative with? Yeah, I think it's all the above. Pricing for sure is a way to differentiate yourself. Thinking about what it is you're going to offer and how you offer that. And that kind of goes hand in hand with pricing. So, you know, we've done tons of episodes on different pricing subscription services or, you know, how you kind of think about your products. So would encourage you to go and listen to all of those and really get a sense of there's so many options out there, but really thinking about who is it you're going to help and what is it that they value and how do they value it and how would they like to receive those services and how would they like to pay for those services? I think just putting yourself in your ideal client's mind frame is going to give you a different and more interesting place to start than just saying, oh, I'm going to bill $350 an hour and I'm going to just do it the way I've always done it. I mean, by all means, I see a lot of people doing that, but then what I'm suggesting is that maybe there's a more interesting way of doing it and it might make your path easier. How do you gather the data to decide that you've made the right choice around the way that you offer your services or the way that you price? Do you need to interview other people? Do you need to talk to your prospective clients? Do you need to think about the last couple of clients that you served in your current capacity? I'm just curious, because that seems like a place where you could easily go down the wrong road and think, oh, yeah, people are definitely going to want this. And then you spend all this time setting your firm up and your marketing to reflect that and then find that nobody actually does want things delivered that way. Yes, I was shaking my head yes to all those questions. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Go talk to people. Other industries, they go and they talk to people and they do this research and they have prototypes and they experiment with it and they get beta versions in people's hands. So I think the good news is in today's world of the idea of failing fast, you have that minimally viable product, that MVP that you create something and you get it out into the marketplace so you can test it. But part of that testing process is talking to people and asking those questions and getting all that feedback this shouldn't just be something that lives in your head, right? And you see this too. I mean, I'm sure you have great examples too, Laura. Yeah, I think that we often see things that we think are going to work really well. And having data to back that up is very helpful because sometimes it can surprise you what people are really thinking. So it might seem like a good idea to you, but it's important to remember you might not be your ideal client. I see that come up a lot of like, well, it makes perfect sense to me to price it in this way, but you might not be the same person that you're marketing to. So try to get out there and hear the way that your clients are phrasing things and the way that they're positioning these challenges, because you can use that information in a lot of different 
different ways, including to help format what those final pricing structures and services look like. But it can also be fed right back into your marketing because you've pulled that from your potential ideal clients. So don't overlook that step because I think it's really important that you make that distinction between what you believe is going to work really well and where your clients would actually like to see things. So one of our labsters, when she wanted to offer subscription services, went to all of her existing clients or a bunch of them and started asking questions. And she was going to offer like a hybrid. So there would be a subscription for some pieces of services, but maybe other things she was going to keep hourly for now. And as she learned, and she thought that, well, these people on my subscription service would probably just want a discount. And she was thinking in her mind, it would be a huge discount on her billable hourly rate. I mean, I say huge, but 10 to 12%. But when she asked the questions of her clients, they all said, oh yeah, maybe a 5% discount would be cool. And so it surprised her in a different way, right? Where she was going to give them a bigger discount and it turned Turns out they were expecting a smaller one. And this feels like some of that data can even contribute to the bigger access to justice issue of how many people are having to or feeling like they should resolve their legal issue without an attorney. Like there's already a huge disconnect there of how people are solving their legal problems. And so the more that you can understand the thought process that they're going through, the questions that they're asking and what's important to them, the easier it's going to be for you to answer those questions because it's coming directly from them and can hopefully help to address some of those challenges around people who've feel like they have to go another direction or like they don't need an attorney or that it's too expensive to get one. There's a lot of opportunity there, it sounds like. So when you're getting ready to launch out on your own, I think probably the biggest question that attorneys have is, okay, what is this going to cost? Do I need to have a certain budget set aside? Do I need to have a certain amount saved to kind of float me through the first couple of months? Can you kind of speak generally about some of the core costs that go into launching your own firm? So good news is that you can start your firm with a lot less money than maybe in the past, but let me just throw out a word of caution. You're not exactly sure when you're going to have a solid income coming in. And so you need to think about your business expenses and you also need to think about your personal expenses. And although our good lawyers remember corporate law and we know that those two things are very different. So the first thing I would just think about is how much do you need personally to live, like to cover your rent or your mortgage or whatever that is. And if you have a spouse or partner or someone who can help with those expenses, great. But if not, you know, how many months of savings are you going to need in order to live your life without income coming in? So kind of think about that as bucket number one. Bucket number two then is your business. You're going to incur startup expenses, one-time expenses that you're going to need to get going. And then you're going to have ongoing monthly expenses that you're going to need to cover in your business. And we have a great tool on the website in the Insider Library where we have a budget template for you to get started with, and it helps you kind of start thinking about some of these expenses. So for example, a website, you're going to have a one-time cost to get your website up and running, and then you'd have an ongoing monthly expense to keep it going. Are there expenses that you think are tempting or people believe they need to spend that you can really go without? Like, is there any way to cross something off your list that maybe is in the back of your mind as being a non-negotiable? I would encourage people to keep your overhead as low as possible in the beginning as you get going, because you can always add more, but it's really hard to take away. So good news is in light of pandemic, I think people's ideas about office space have changed, but I've always encouraged people 
don't go sign a huge lease for an office space right up front if you're not sure if you're going to be able to, you know, cover that pretty large expense. Now there's co-working spaces, there's virtual offices where you can work from home. You can work from home and get conference room space, someplace where you only use that space to meet with clients if you're concerned about that. So there's a lot of options in the office space world. And so that's an easy one for me to say, don't jump into that just yet. You know, even website might be another one. Yes, you need a web presence because everyone's going to be looking for your site, but you can easily put up a kind of a homepage landing page with some minimum content on it because it might take you a while to build out the rest of your site. I don't know what you think about this, Laura, but... Oh yeah, I completely agree. I think that we see some successful attorneys that aren't viewing their website as the 100% be all end all of their marketing effort. And so... If you go out there, there's a lot of different firms that are targeting attorneys for website design and development projects, but maybe you don't need the one that's quoting you the ten dollars to $15,000 website launch project that has 25 different pages and has all of these different bells and whistles on it. I mean, you can definitely build from a good base by getting started with something that has a solid homepage, maybe a services page and a contact page. And that's a good enough place to start. If you don't have the website design skills, maybe you don't do it yourself, but look for somebody who can help build that off of a template, maybe who has some experience in the legal industry, but a website is only going to be as valuable as the marketing methods that you're driving to it. So it is not a build it and they will come situation. So unless you are using Google ads or Facebook ads or have some other method of driving direct traffic to the website, keep it simple for when you first get started and have that plan to build it up as you have more clients coming in and can direct more revenue to it because it makes more sense then. I think we need to take that phrase you just said and like put it on billboards. Like, <laughs> A website does not be, it's not a, you build it and they come situation. I love that. And I think we get this question from time to time. And sometimes even when I work with our labsters, they're like, okay, well, what is the like strategy that I can implement for my website to be great? It's important to be asking that question for sure. We want to make sure that your website is well-written, it's error-free, it's mobile optimized, it has good page speed, all of those things. But it's only going to be as valuable as what we can send to it. So if we don't have that traffic method yet, don't panic about it because the worst thing that I think could happen is you spend that $15,000 on a full website build and still no one is finding your website. So it's really okay to start small and build that out over time and add more content over time. And if it needs to become fancier, you can invest in that. But I think This gets to what we're going to talk about in a minute, which is the fact that we really need to be focused on clients. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about what you really should be focusing on when it comes to getting clients in the door. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebettys.com slash lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month. Typing the same thing like your email address or phone number over and over is a productivity killer. Turn everything you need to type more than once into a snippet with Text Expander. Type an abbreviation you make and your snippet automatically expands. 
Text Expander works everywhere you type and helps you reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander is also available for companies so you can share snippets with everyone on your team. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com podcast to learn more. Looking for a true alternative to LexisNexis or Westlaw? You could save thousands this year if you switched to Case Text. Over 6,000 law firms from solos to 40% of the AM Law 100 use Case Text to help them find better results in less time and for less money. For $65 per month, you'll get access to 50 state and federal case law, statutes, and more with zero out-of-plan fees. Try the Smarter Legal Research platform. Lawyerist podcast listeners can go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to try case text for free for two weeks. And we're back. So I think there's so many things to think about when you're launching your own firm that it's very easy to feel overwhelmed, right? And, and even like, you know, we're talking about you need to set up a budget and we need to be thinking about all of these different things from a financial perspective. A lot of it seems to come down to clients and your ability to get clients and start building that engine of your law firm. So can you talk a little bit about recommendations you have around that? Yeah. The biggest thing here is, yes, you have to have clients because without that, (laughs) really nothing else matters. Right. So that really is your first focus. And I think the mistake that I see there is what I'll call random acts of marketing or, you know, the idea we just throw a bunch of stuff up on the wall and see what sticks. And this is the mistake so many people make. Either they hear other people are doing it or they just see all the tools out there and they're like, I need to be on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and all the things, right? Or they hear, I need to go to lunch every day with a different person and that will bring me traffic or clients. And I always say to people, maybe, maybe it will. But what I would prefer you to do is to actually step back and be strategic about it. Yeah. And this is that dangerous point where you have to balance asking the right people, the right kinds of questions and not trying to crowdsource your decisions or have decisions by committee. I was working with one of our labsters recently and he said, well, you know, somebody sent me this quote and it's thousands of dollars a month to do my marketing. And so I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn. And this was somebody who practices in the corporate space. And I'm like, are your clients on Instagram? Like, do you you really need to have an Instagram presence right now? And more than that, be paying someone to do it. So just because someone has told you to do this thing, or you've seen another attorney being successful at trying this particular method, doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do that. And so I think it's important to be aware of the advice and the help that you're getting. What kinds of advice providers make the most sense so where we can sort through that information more easily to figure out who's really telling me something I need to think about versus someone who's chiming in and giving me advice about the way they've done it, but it's not relevant for me. Yeah, that's a great question. I used to start all my public speaking appearances with this story about this one time when I ran a two mile race in track. And by the way, I was a sprinter. So I, the two mile race was like the worst thing in the world for me. (laughs) Our two miler got hurt. And so coach asked me to run the race because there were only two other competitors and we just needed points. If I finished, we would get points towards our team goal. (laughs) So that was my whole job. And as I'm running this race, I'm keeping track of the amount of laps. It was eight laps around the track. And we got to like the six and a half mark. And the person that I was running against, their coach told them to kick it and like run and sprint in. And so they did. 
they started sprinting and I didn't start sprinting and everybody was like yelling at me. Like my, nobody was paying attention by the way to this race until suddenly they see this girl take off. And then all of a sudden people start yelling at me, like run sprint, you know, go with her. And I'm thinking to myself, we have a whole nother lap and a half. Like I'm not going to sprint in a lap and a half. Well, it turns out she stepped off the track of lap early. Her coach miscounted. So they were wrong. And I ended up winning this race, which is really sad way to win. The story is not meant to convey my running ability or racing ability at all. It was probably the slowest two mile race in the school history, but my coach wasn't really paying attention and started yelling at me to go with this person, right? I had to trust myself to know that that was not good advice for me at the time. And so it's important to have good coaches, but it's also important to listen to yourself. Like if you're a fan of lawyerists and you've read our book and you're like, yes, I want to practice law in a new way and I'm going to do this new thing. And then everyone you go to and talk to at bar associations is telling you the same old stuff that you know is the old way of doing things. You get to be the boss to say, I don't have to listen to that advice or follow it because I'm doing something new and different. And that's hard sometimes to do, and it's easy to kind of get sucked into what everybody's telling you, but I just kind of want to give you that encouragement that it's okay to stay true to yourself and know, okay, I've got a plan and I'm going to do things differently. I'm not going to just rely on this thing. I'm going to go and experiment with online marketing or whatever it is that you're trying to do or have subscription service. Like understand that those are still new in the world of lawyers and we are very you know, old fashioned sometimes. Right. And it's dangerous if somebody gives you that negative feedback when you already came to the internal decision that you were ready to do it because coming to that decision is a big milestone and it allows you to start putting the wheels in motion for what you're going to do to implement that. And then when you start questioning yourself and going backwards, that's where it can get very muddy from the perspective of what you're focused on, but also for your clients. Like if you've made a decision to price things differently or handle client intake differently than you've seen it done at other law firms, that's something you need to stick with and work through and make sure it's the right decision for you. Even if somebody else tells me, oh, well, I tried that once five years ago and it didn't work at all because you don't have all the information to know perhaps why that didn't work. Maybe it was a market thing. Maybe it was that particular group of clients didn't resonate. Maybe they didn't have the framework in place to make it be successful. So that's why we are always encouraging our community members to brainstorm with other attorneys who are at similar places, who think about practicing law in similar ways, because then you're getting the most meaningful feedback. And it could be hard because you're like, okay, at what point, you know, we talked about this before we hit record, like at what point are you truly failing and it's not working? Yeah. And that's tough too. And there's no easy answer. And it's not like I could just sit here and say, oh, it's at this point. You know, maybe the other kind of a piece of advice, so going backwards a little bit on the money piece My husband and I have both owned um, numerous businesses now, and we got this great advice when we started out that we've done for each of our ventures, which is we agree as a family unit how much money we are willing to invest in this business overall. Mm. And so we say, okay, this is how much money we're willing to put in, and that's the cap because it's so easy when you get going to say, oh, we just need $5,000 more. Oh, we just need this much more. We just need this much more. And before you know it, you've actually put a ton of money or resources into this really, you know, sometimes a dead or struggling business, let's just be honest. And you have to kind of know when to cut it off. And it's hard when you're in it and you're emotionally in it and you know you're so close. So sometimes making that decision on the front end before all the emotions are there 
really can help you and help you see, is this where we thought it was going to be? That's a really good point because even though you are driving so many of these decisions, if you do have a family, if you do have a spouse or a partner, this is ultimately going to affect them in some way too. So figuring out what is going to be that point where we go, okay, maybe this is the sign of the times that I need to be asking the more difficult questions. Maybe there's some information here that's pointing me towards I'm putting too much in and not getting enough out and I need to switch something up or reconsider this idea because you can bear a lot of weight being the primary decision maker. I mean, there's a lot of talk about that in you know these business and leadership books about decision fatigue and it's the reason why you know Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg that wear the same clothes every single day day, it's one less decision that they have to make. And so you also have to balance how you're going to make all of those decisions and not get exhausted on a day-to-day basis, being the firm leader, also being the practitioner, but having some of those numbers that you've set in advance, some of those rules and guidelines that you've set will help you go back and be like, hey, I actually already decided this. So now I'm just looking to see, do I have the data and the information to pull from that to decide what I'm going to do next? It's so hard. And Laura knows me and I have a very positive, like I'm the eternal optimist sometimes. And, and sometimes to my detriment, because I might set a goal for myself or for the company, and I just know we're going to hit it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, we're of course we'll hit it, because that's what I do. I hit goals, and I achieve goals. And sometimes it's hard to see if you're on pace to not hit a goal, right? Because you just think, well, I can just make it happen. And so I just want to tell our listeners, like, what we're saying right now is not easy. And I can also tell you, because running a business can be agonizingly hard. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. My husband and I often have these conversations where it's like, wow, this is super difficult. And it's hard to step back and see that big picture and see like, are we where we need to be? Or do we need to make adjustments? And what are the right adjustments? And yeah, so I just want to give you like my virtual hug because this is <laughs> not easy stuff. Yeah, it's so hard because if you don't hit that goal in August or September, a motivated person is going to say, okay, I'll just do twice as much in the months that follow, right? I'll find some way to catch up. And you have to strike such a hard balance between doing what we've told you is super important, getting clients and serving your clients, and also not letting that be what you do 85% of the time, because you're going to have to be able to step back and figure out, have I reached the point where I'm so busy, I need to hire someone? Are there other things that I'm not getting to, I'm not marketing consistently, so I'm going to have a really dry period of a couple of months where there's no clients if I don't have a way to manage that. So it is really hard and there are no easy answers around it. And that again is where I think it's really helpful to have a community, to have other people to turn to because they get it. They understand what it's like to go through a slow season or some of the challenges that attorneys that are practicing by themselves or in small firms face. And sometimes it's just that motivation that you need to be like, okay, maybe this is a little bit normal and I can just push through, or this is the action step I need to take in this moment of being frustrated or not having enough clients or being totally overwhelmed. Yeah. Something else you said is so true. When you start a small business It's a family venture. I don't care if your loved ones have anything to do with the day-to-day running of your firm. It just is, right? Because you bring it home. You can't help but bring it home. Right. So my husband and I own multiple businesses together. And so if you're in this place, the last piece of advice I want to give you is we've come up with a great rule 
of like our wife hat versus our business partner hat. <laughs> and so we've learned, like we have to call business meetings and mm-hmm. we'll say like, like it's not okay for my husband while I'm like getting out of the shower and getting ready in the morning to ask me if I paid his whatever bill for his business or something. Right. Cause it sounds silly, but I'll be like, oh, that's not my frame of mind right now because I'm like getting ready in the morning. And so you get to say like, we need a business meeting and we both come to the business meeting. We actually have like a table at our house. That's like our business meeting spot. And we're like, we are calling a business meeting and now we are not talking to each other as in our case, husband and wife, we're talking to each other as business owners. And that has been really helpful for us because we need to be able to ask each other hard questions. And it's really hard to do that. Of course, you still love each other and you know all the things, but it's just really hard. So make sure you kind of define these rules for each other, even if your loved ones aren't in the day-to-day for your business, because ultimately you'll end up talking about it and this is just going to happen. That idea of separation is so key because a lot of times what we bring home are the stressful or the bad parts. And so your spouse or your other family members might be interpreting this as being an epic failure or being really, really hard work and there's no upside. And so it's important to contextualize those kinds of things by having the business meeting and making time in that business meeting to discuss some of the wins too, right? Because it's so easy to get focused on all of the things that maybe aren't working as well as what you wanted. And and I know that's something that we even try to do as a company. We have every team member share their wins in a Slack channel and we have people report in on their personal and their best business news every single week because you can get into that cycle where you're like, well, this isn't working and this isn't working and I tried that and that was a failure. And then it does feel really negative and it doesn't feel fun anymore. And sometimes we're striving so much to hit goals that we forget to stop and celebrate those goals before moving on to the next thing. And I think having those business meetings and keeping your family involved how you can makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that feels like a great place to wrap up. Celebrate your wins. I was just going to say, that's the perfect place to end. So celebrate your wins. Thanks so much, Stephanie. This is a great episode. The Lawyers Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com slash community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.